We continue to study through the book of John. We're working through this book. We're working through it uh, slowly. We're at the end of John chapter 7 today. And really the theme of today's message is that our words hold power. And you know, we learn this from a very young age. Most of us remember a time growing up where we fell, maybe we got hurt, maybe something happened to us and we got injured. And who's the first person that we run to, mom or dad? And we run to them because we know first they're going to come, they're going to take us in, they're going to hold us and they're going to comfort us with their presence. But we also know that they're going to say things to us that are going to help to ease the pain and ease what we're feeling in that moment. And we think about it when we are meeting somebody, our closest friends, the people that we have the deepest and most meaningful relationships with, they're the ones that we talk to the most. And not just shallow words, not just words that are communicating very little, but our deepest, most meaningful friendships are with people that we can have really deep and meaningful conversations with. Because words hold power. They mean something. When you're going to have an interview and you're going to, to, to go to get a job, what do you do? You sit down and you, you meet with the person that, that's going to be potentially hiring you. And between the two parties, there are lots of words exchanged. Because words are a way that we get to know one another. Words have power. I remember folks have asked me this a lot over the years. How did you get involved in in coaching high school football? And I remember years ago in college I had uh, a coach of mine that was a mentor. And I told him how much I wanted to get back involved in the sport. And I was living in, in Scranton at the time. Actually Clark Summit. And he said, if you make a phone call to the coach of the local high school football team at Abington Heights High School there, there could be an opportunity for you. And I remember thinking, well, that's odd. I've never met this man before. He's a stranger to me. He's not going to know why I'm calling him, what I'm calling about. And I remember picking up the phone one day in my dorm and making a phone call. And on the other end of the phone, Greg Justave, the head football coach at Abington Heights, picked up. And he said, how can I help you? And I said, look, I'm, I'm looking to get back involved in the sport, to invest in the lives of young men, many of whom I know don't have their own fathers, to be a light for them. I'll fill water bottles. I'll hand out equipment. I'll help them tie their shoes. I don't care. I'm just looking to, to get involved. And I remember him uh, kind of chuckling on the other end of the phone, and he said, uh, you don't, first, he, you don't know much about high school football and coaching high school football. I didn't realize that across the country, there's a great need in almost every high school football program for men of character to invest in young men. And he called me and invited me to be part of the coaching staff that very year. And that's how I got involved. But it was through using my words, using my words. You know, our children, when they're young and they get angry and they have these fits of emotions, sometimes we see, I call it criminal activity. It goes on in, in our own homes, you know, they get angry and they get upset. And they, what do they often want to do when they don't know how to use their words yet because they haven't understood that their words can communicate things like how they feel, how the actions of another person have made them feel. They haven't realized the power that their words hold. And so what they want to do by nature, a lot of times, is just act out and throw things or act out emotionally in anger, get upset, maybe stomp, maybe slam doors. 
But as parents, as, as caregivers, as grandparents, aunts and uncles, mentors, one of our jobs is to teach our children about the power of their words. God uses words. And John chapter 7 has been entirely about the teaching of Jesus. Remember, we're in the midst of this great festival. It's actually coming to an end. Jesus has ascended. He's taught up in the temple. And now what we're looking at today is the fallout of his words. How his words were received and the way they influenced and motivated the behavior of the people he was talking to. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 7 today. We're at the end of that chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 40 to 52. If you remember, we've seen Jesus as the true teacher who judges righteously and perfectly fulfills and applies the law. We've seen him teach uh, himself as being Christ, the Son of the living God, the one that's able to provide living water and now we're going to see the fallout of those words and how the people responded this is john chapter 7 verses 40 to 52 and before we read let's have a word of prayer lord we pray your guidance over our time together today as we open your word lord we recognize as our team sang this morning that indeed you are worthy You are worthy of every outcome that will flow from our time together today in your word. We know your spirit's already at work and alive and moving in the lives of every individual in this room. And Father, we are trusting that just as your word promises, it will not return void. But it will have its effect as we open it today, Lord. Father, might you be glorified by what you produce through it. Might you be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 7, verses 40 to 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has Not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was division among the people over them. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see. That no prophet arises from Galilee. When they heard these words. Words. All of this today is in response to the teaching of Jesus. What he shared with them while he was in the temple. During the festival. Could this Jesus, could he be the prophet? 
that was promised all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Some of the people who had gathered had seen the connections. They recognized the reality. They knew the story of Moses. Moses' life begins, he's found in a reed basket in the water. It ends at water that separates him from the wilderness and the promised land. Jesus' earthly ministry begins with his baptism in water. His first miracle is turning water into wine. In John 4, he meets with a woman at the well. He defines himself as the eternally satisfying living water. They see that there's these similarities between the two. Moses, in the minds of the religious leaders, he had been able to provide manna in the wilderness for the people when they were hungering. And you remember a few weeks back, we were looking at Jesus, who was leading as, as a better version of Moses, providing so much to the people with just a few fish and loaves of bread. Their understanding and believing that Jesus may be the prophet was resting on what they knew to be true from the book of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen just as you desired of the lord your god at oreb on the day of the assembly when you said let me not hear again the voice of the lord my god or see this great fire anymore lest i die and the lord said to me they are right in what they have spoken i will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and i will put my words words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that i command some of the people thought surely this must be that prophet this must be him others rightly believed that jesus was the christ but you know the christ was to have specific origins and I think it's really interesting in this text. Do you notice that the people in the text don't know the real birthplace of Jesus? They've missed that. The, the people in this text, both the, those who had gathered to hear him teach in the temple and the religious leaders, they both misattribute the birth of Jesus to this place in Galilee. But what do we know to be true? Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but... You, O Bethlehem, Epathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. This is a Christmas passage that we often talk about. Whose coming forth is from days of old. So we know that the Christ was to come from the city of Jerusalem. And what do we find out when we open up the New Testament? Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, as clear as day. Now after... Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Born in Bethlehem, just as it said in the Old Testament. Check. Jesus, the, the Christ, he was also supposed to be from the line of David. And so there's some concerns here. In this text, there's some division among the people. Isn't this guy from Galilee? Isn't the Christ supposed to be from the line of David? And what John intends for us to see, church, today as we look back on this text is indeed Jesus was exactly who the Old Testament said he would be. 
Look at Romans chapter 1. This is Paul, clear as day, the line from which Jesus descended. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So these questions that these people have, one, Jesus wasn't born in Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem, just as the Bible said. And two, indeed, he was from the line of David. This has been the theme of the whole feast, right? This, in fact, John chapter 7 through John chapter 10, we said the one overarching question that hangs over this portion of John is who is Jesus? Who is he? And the people are still wrestling. There's still division. They're still trying to figure it out. There's confusion. And when there's confusion, church, we often find division division and so there's division over who Jesus is but Jesus is not caught off guard by this division in fact if you remember Matthew chapter 10 verses 34 and 35 do not think that I have come to bring peace to this earth I have not come to bring peace but a sword Luke chapter 12 51 do you think that I have come to give peace on earth no I tell you but rather division There's division here, friends, over the person of Jesus. And friends, in our life, church, in our lives, when we go out into the workplace, when we go out into the communities, when we talk with our friends that tell us a lot about Jesus, when we go back to the real identity of Jesus, who Jesus truly is, oftentimes we find there will be division. As we shared this last week, there are a lot of people in our lives who are willing to talk to us about God. And I see a lot of heads nodding because you know these people in your lives. They'll talk to you on and on and on about God. But when you bring Jesus Christ up, the nature of the discussion changes because there's division over those that truly know Jesus, the real Jesus, and those who think they know him or know a lot about him but aren't truly in a relationship with him. Jesus was not surprised. He's not caught off guard here. He knew that their confusion would lead to this division. And ultimately this division would lead towards their anger and hostility. The very anger and hostility that would have Jesus nailed to a cross. And so they seek to have him arrested. But again, because the Lord's protecting him and divine providence is at work here. No one is able To lay a hand on him. Now look at the behavior that Jesus' words motivate in verses 45 to 49. We we said this at the beginning. Our words motivate behaviors oftentimes. When we run to our mothers and run to our fathers and we say, hey, I'm hurt. I fell and hurt my knee. What, What does that do? That motivates behavior. Oh, come here, come here. You know, and so using our words motivates behavior and Jesus's words here have motivated some behavior not all good we're going to see verses 45 to 49 the officers came to the chief priests the chief priests and the Pharisees are shocked that they don't have Jesus they had one job go get that guy bring him to us they couldn't do it why did you not bring him and look at their answer No one 
ever spoke like this man. Words. No one ever spoke like him. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. Now, I think it's important, friends, when we read texts like this, that we remember that Jesus' words have motivated the exact behavior that the Father intended in this situation. His words have motivated the exact behavior that the Father intended. There's a warrant out for Jesus' arrest. The chief priest and the Pharisees, they intend to see this warrant executed. So they set loose their temple police to have Jesus arrested and to put an end to all this chaos. Do you remember? He's the talk of this festival. But when the officers arrive back at the Sanhedrin's quarters, the leaders are perplexed. Why are you empty-handed? And the response of the officers is indicative to the power of Jesus' words, is it not? No one ever spoke like this man. And and we said last week, friends, verses 37 to 39 of John chapter 7, those were words that no man would have ever dare spoke before in the assembly, in that kind of audience. That he was the living water, that he was able to provide living water for them. The kind of things he said, the authority he commanded, the way that he knew the scriptures inside and out and knew perfectly how to apply them, much more so than the Pharisees. No one ever spoke like that man. And now put yourself in the shoes of these temple guards who had been sent to arrest him. These are not Roman soldiers, friends. These are Levitical temple guards. They come from the Levitical order of priests. They're not Roman guards at this point. They've been sent by the chief priest and the Sadducees. So they know the scriptures. And when they approach this man to arrest him, they're confronted with the reality that what if what he's saying is true? What if it's true? Do they want to be guilty of that? The Levitical priests, the Levitical guards that have been sent to arrest him, do they want to be guilty of potentially arresting the Christ? Jesus, they were not ignorant of the prophecies regarding the promised Messiah. Jesus' words were powerful. They were motivating and having effective influence over their behavior. This was very God revealed in the flesh. The eternal life-giving word whose every word and deed flowed from the Father. And I think it's interesting that the reality here is that the temple guards who were sent to arrest Jesus perhaps had a clearer understanding of who Jesus truly was than the men who sent them to arrest him. Yes? And the Pharisees here, don't they just show themselves to be the miserable leaders that they are? And you know, we give the Pharisees a bad rap, but I gotta be honest with you, in my own life, sometimes I'm guilty of some of the similar behaviors of them. But I look at the way that they respond to the guards that come back here, and I think, oh, what a horrible display of their miserable and failed leadership. The next two statements are an indictment of how terribly they were lording over the people. 
Jesus in our text is ascending as a leader among the people. He's leading from chapter 5 all the way through until he raises again. And he's still sitting at the right hand of God ruling. But the Pharisees are contrasted in the book of John. Their leadership and influence is decreasing. It's failing. Look at these two statements. We'll take them. We'll break them down one at a time. Let's start with the first one in verse 48. Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Why should you believe in him? We, we are in authority over you. We're more powerful than you. We're, we're the spiritually mature people here. You should listen to us. And have any of us believed in him? The intended answer that they want them in their minds to say is, well, no, no. And their thought is, well, then this should motivate that no one else should believe in him as well. Because we, the religious elite, don't believe in him. No one else should believe. This is, friends, this is a logical fallacy. It's an appeal to authority. Essentially, what they're saying is, look, none of us believed in this guy. We're in a higher position than you, so you shouldn't believe in him either. Hmm. So full of themselves, the Pharisees. Always the arbiters of belief, the self-anointed key holders to what genuine faith looked like. Look at their second statement. The second statement perhaps is even more damaging than the first. This is horrible. But this crowd that does not know the law is cursed. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, this is their real heart, friends. It's exposed and laid out before us here at the end of John chapter 7. And you know, a question that went through my head as I was studying this text earlier in the week was, who was responsible for that? I'm reading this and I'm thinking, this would be like on Friday night if our guys went out in the field to play a game and they didn't know the game plan. And then we were complaining that we lost because our players didn't know the game plan. Well, whose job is it to teach them the game plan? Well, I can't. They just don't learn. They just can't learn it. Well, then figure out a better way to teach it. Well, they can't do it. They can't execute it. Well, then come up with something that's better. Some better method or strategy. If the people didn't know the law, it said far more about the quality of the religious leader's leadership than the people themselves. They're condemning their own leadership. This is blaming. I talk about this a lot up here. I know blaming, complaining, defending. This is just that typical, we call it loser mentality in football. That's what it is, friends. This is a loser mentality. They can't figure it out. Those people, they don't know the law. They're, they're just buying into his lies. They're cursed. They're cursed. They're cursing, belittling, degrading the very people they were called to edify, encourage, and build up. And friends, unfortunately, this happens in the church today sometimes. There are pockets where this kind of leadership is present and evident in the church. 
I try to correct this thinking all the time because I hear it. I have friends that, you know, I'll say to them, I'll talk, something will be coming up and I'll say something like, oh, I hope that the weather holds out for that event. And they'll look at me and they'll say, well, you have a stronger connection than I do on that so you can make that happen. <laughs> and, and, I, and I had to correct them. I have a really good friend that says that to me a lot of times and I say, I don't. <laughs> If you're a brother in Christ, you have the same connection I have, and your prayer is just as effective as mine. You can pray and make it happen too, if it's the Lord's intended will. But you hear, you hear these things throughout, and, and they come across in little ways. You know, and, and friends, uh, uh, to be honest, again, I don't want to offend anybody here, but having the opportunity in, in New York to go and to visit some of these beautiful, beautiful Catholic churches, and boy... I'm sorry, I'll just say it came to mind that the, the passage that Jesus says to the religious leaders about whitewashed tombs. They're beautiful on the outside. And I think about how much money must have been invested back in the day to have these beautiful buildings put up. But what's going on in the lives of the people who are coming to worship inside of them? Friends, inside of this one as well, what's going on in our lives? And, and, and the reality is these religious leaders, they're just lording this authority, self-appointed. And, and maybe it was appointed within the, the structure of, of, of their society, but the law was never meant to be a burden like this on the people. Not the burden that they had made it to be. And they were never to be lording it over the people the way that they were. They were a people that were defined by the law not by faith. And church, one of the greatest calls for us today, one of the greatest challenges for us today is to stay a people who are committed by being defined as a people of faith and not a people of the law. Because by our nature, friends, we always want to go back to the law. I know I do. Maybe some of you don't, but I know by my nature that's one of my natural inclinations is to always to press back into the law. But look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Oh, that we would be defined by a people of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law. This was the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They're under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. By faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus was doing a better job in the short amount of time he had on earth amongst the people. He was doing a better job shepherding, shepherding them, guiding them, and preparing them for the future than the religious leaders and those who had been appointed to rule over them. The ones appointed to keep and uphold the law in Jesus' day, they were the vilest defenders of it without realizing it. They looked all spiritual. In church, we are a people saved by grace, called to faith, 
justified by Christ. We are found in a right relationship because of His grace, not because of our ability to follow a law. We are who we are by the grace of God, and His grace to us is never given without effect. And when our faith rests in the power of God, our words are sent and received with God-honoring intentions. When our faith rests in His power, our words are sent and received with God-honoring intentions. But when our faith rests in our own wisdom, our words are sent and received with self-honoring intentions. The worst kind of leadership is the kind that we see from the Pharisees and the religious leaders that set themselves up on these pedestals and these white ivory towers and say, hey, try to be as spiritual as we are. We saw a model of it in the Gospels of Prayer, right? Thank, thank you, Lord, for not making me like that guy. What kind of leadership is that? None. Not very good. Now, here you have this crowd seeking to arrest Jesus. God has, interestingly enough, prepared a curious advocate in this crowd for Jesus. Isn't this amazing? At the end of John 7, I love that Nicodemus makes an appearance at the end of this chapter. Talk about God's superintendence. Talk about what we say. All the time we say there are no chance relationships. Every encounter God has prepared for a purpose in our lives. Every day we should be prepared for whatever encounter comes our way because God might use it in some way later on. John chapter 3, Jesus had an encounter with this man Nicodemus. And now here's, here are the re- religious leaders and Pharisees wanting to destroy Jesus, arrest him. And there's an advocate that's present that speaks up. Oh, and the courage, the courage of Nicodemus. Look at these verses in 50 to 52. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, one of the religious leaders and Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, look at again, Are you too from Galilee? Search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. Friends, words hold power. God can use our words to motivate behavior, and he certainly used the words of Jesus to Nicodemus to motivate Nicodemus' behavior in this very moment, this very instance. Nicodemus is standing in a room where he might be the only one who's going to say, this word or stand up and give a defense of Jesus. He might be the only person in the room who thinks this way. The atmosphere in that room was dirty. We could see it. There's this growing hatred and dissent towards Jesus. You can see the hearts of the Pharisees and the religious leaders exposed in the way that they talked. This is the kind of emotion that's red-faced body-shaking, emotion-filled, bitter rage and hostility towards Jesus. He would soon be captured, arrested, tried, and murdered by these very people. That's the environment that Nicodemus is in. That's the huddle that he's a part of right now. And for him to have the courage to stand and to speak in this moment, I found it incredibly, incredibly challenging for me this week. 
that a man would stand against what was popular amongst his peers, amongst his friends, and would speak truth. The one who had gone to Jesus, the last time we found him, he was going to Jesus by night. Once a skeptic, now he's advocating justice for Jesus. Formerly a coward who carefully and cautiously approached Jesus. A coward no more, speaking in the light. We need to look no further than his example to see that God can use our words to motivate behaviors. I love it. The first action that Nicodemus takes here, if you look at this text, the first action that he takes is to actually speak. That's his first action. Because in a situation like this, in an environment like this, many of us would just stay quiet. It's a lot safer, right? A lot less drama that would come our way. And so the first action is perhaps the most difficult action. There's conviction in Nicodemus' heart. These, these people want to hold Jesus accountable to a law that they themselves aren't willing to be accountable to. And Nicodemus wants to hold their feet to the fire on it. So the first and most difficult thing, the most courageous thing, is to speak. And he does. And once the words come out, for those of you, all of us in this room, maybe most of us have been in a situation like this where you're sitting there thinking, should I say something? Should I say something? And you know, like, I don't want to say something. And, and then next thing you know, blurp. <laughs> and once it comes out, you know that thing that kind of clicks in your mind? Well, now it's out there. I might as well keep on going. <laughs> Just might as well keep on going. And I, and I kind of think that that's what's going on here. Nicodemus starts... And he continues, and I love that he appeals to the very law by which the chief priests want to hold Jesus accountable to. He's not making up some rule. He's not grabbing something out of thin air. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they want to hold Jesus accountable. Follow the law, Jesus. Okay. So Nicodemus is saying, how are we doing, guys? That very law by which you want to hold him accountable to? Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? His words are careful. They're clear. He's leaning on Old Testament scriptures and he's leaning on teachings from the rabbis that would have agreed with the same sentiments that he was sharing. He's holding them accountable. And I love that he crafts a question because, friends, questions are great ways to generate introspective thinking. To get people to pause. If you've ever been in a situation that's been heated, and, and many of us have been, where there's anger on both sides and you have some emotions and there's tension. When we're in those situations, a lot of times the best thing that we can do is think of a great question to ask. To get people to think about why they're feeling the way that they are. Or what's going on in their minds. And so Nicodemus fashions a beautiful question for the people to consider. But I love the courage. I love the boldness. I love that he appeals to Scripture. Remember a few weeks ago we said that that's where we need to go. That's our safest place to come from. And that's what Nicodemus does right here. Knowing he would face certain scrutiny, he speaks. And again... Just as they had dismissed those who had been sent to arrest Jesus, look at how they dismiss 
his words. Their rage, friends, has blinded them to the truth. Have you ever been in a situation like this where you've been in a room and there's been tension and anger and hostility and one party in that room is so angry and they're so bitter? Maybe they're emotional and and they're shaking because of their anger, but they're so completely poisoned against the other party that they cannot see the truth that clearly sits right in front of their eyes. That's where they're at. That's where the Pharisees and the religious leaders are right here. Completely missed who Jesus was. Their hatred, their vitriol towards him had completely blinded them. They could not see. Knowing they did not know, seeing they did not see. So we ask ourselves this question as we conclude John chapter 7. How should our lives look in light of these realities? And friends, I I would just say today, this text to me is a reminder that God can use our words in powerful ways. In powerful ways. And church, we are called to be a body that builds up. We're called to be a body that unites. We're called to be a body that encourages one another. This is what true discipleship is about. Encouraging, edifying, building up, uniting. Our words are to be used for those kinds of purposes. And when there's joy in our heart and we have great hope and we're thankful, often our words, because of what's in our heart, the words flow out and we see the Lord working in unity, in healing, in edifying, in building up. Just Share that you're thankful for each other every once in a while. Just share how joyful you are because of a relationship the Lord's brought into your life. You know, I'm glad to know you. Because before I knew you, this, this, and this, I didn't know. But through Jesus' work in your relationship in my life, I've come to know this, this, and this. And I'm thankful for that. Wow, that can go a long way. That can do a lot. So our words, friends, can be used to edify, to encourage, to equip, to train, to exhort. Sometimes difficult words. Difficult words that are given in love. To help a brother grow or a sister grow. Words that need to be heard but are hard to say. Truthful words. But important. That's how our lives should look, friends. The character of our words, the way that we speak to one another should be characterized by love, building up, not by anger, hostility, anxiety, fear, tension. Those things bring confusion and divide. But the Lord uses our words to unify, equip, empower, and unite. We're going to take some time this morning to celebrate communion together. As some of you know, there's a new schedule for communion now that we're one service. On the even Sundays or the even months, we are going to have communion on the second Sunday of the month. And on the odd months, we're going to have communion on the first Sunday of the month. That way our children's uh, ministry team uh, doesn't have to miss communion uh, as frequently. So they get to have it at least six, seven times a year when we do it on that schedule. The communion at Calvary Monument Bible Church, friends, these are not merely words. These aren't just merely things that we say, but Jesus has called us together as a body of Christ to remember his sacrifice and what he did for us on the cross. And so we put action behind what he's called us to do. 
and communion at Calvary Monument, uh, the elements are available to anyone here who claims to know Jesus and have a relationship with him. If you're a visitor with us today and you have a relationship with Jesus, we'd invite you to participate in the elements with us this morning. If you're here today, though, and do not know Jesus, if you're a visitor and you've, you've not made a commitment to follow Jesus and aren't in a personal relationship with him, we would just ask that you allow the elements to pass by. We don't want you to feel any uh, weird or, or pressure to participate in this with us today. As our elders come forward this morning, let's prepare our hearts to receive communion. Lord, we are thankful for your sacrifice. We're thankful that you said that your words were the words of life. And Lord, we pray that your example would be one that we would follow in. That our words would be spoken and they would be as refreshing fountains to the people in our lives. Lord, we prepare now to remember the sacrifice of your son Jesus, how his body was broken and his blood was spilt for us. I pray as we celebrate this time today that it would be a reverent, worshipful time that we would truly consider the truths of what the sacrifice of Jesus means for our life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.